Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This is Jared Femblow and Rachel Craig. And welcome to our new introductory queer history podcast called Historically Really Good Friends. If there's one thing we learned from our history high school courses is that history is really straight, or so we were taught to believe. Through massive amounts of self-education, we learned that history is queer as fuck. Many of the people you know from your textbooks were friends of Dorothy and bit the pillow once or twice. It's time to reteach ourselves about the truth the queer truth of those who came before us. Rock Hudson, he was queer. The High Five, also queer. Alexander the Great, well, you get the picture. So if you're ready to relearn some history, we're ready to spill the tea. Stay queer, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Welcome to Vulgar History, Feminist Women's History comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is part two of the saga of Njinga of Angola and Matamba. And if you haven't listened to part one, I would strongly encourage you to do so, if just to learn about the murder wedding, and also to learn about the whole first half of her story. Today, we're really getting into... I don't know. I was going to say it's like really getting into like the really scandalous part of it. But like the first part was also. So the scandalousness continues is what's going on right now. So and again, I just want to highlight the fact that she proclaimed herself the um, Angola of Ndongo when she was, I think, aged 41. And that's the midpoint of the story. Like this is a story this is kind of like goals for people. You know, those memes that are always on where they're like, you know, so-and-so published the first book when they were like 32 and this person didn't whatever until they were like 39. Like, and Jenga is goals for people who feel like you have to succeed and do everything you want to do by age 20 or whatever, because it's like, no, this isn't like, you know, the most impressive 40 under 40 or whatever. This is like age 40 plus inspiration and goals because... She does not. This story just stays just as interesting the older she gets. So part two. So in part one, I talked about a bunch of the references that I use. Like the main thing for all of this is the biography by Linda Haywood, which is so good. Super recommend reading that. In this episode, we're getting into more of the queer history parts of her story, which um, for that I was because the Haywood book doesn't dig into that a lot which is not what that book is about the queer as fact podcast which i'm a big fan of so this is a podcast run by four melbourne based queer people with a background in history and a passion for sharing queer stories they have a really good episode about njinga and i would to really dig into more of the queer context of her life i would recommend listening to them but i'm gonna based on what i learned from them and from other sources summarize 
that this part's going to be more in a story. So where we left things was I'm just recapping from myself. Yeah. So the Portuguese attacked her, captured her sisters, Kembu and Funji. Um, and then Jenga was determined to both um, defeat the Portuguese and in so doing to save her sisters and bring them back. So to bolster her forces, she looked to make allies in the region while keeping her battered forces out of reach of the Portuguese army. Because remember, she had just like less and less people as time went on because people were, well, I guess people were dying in battle, but also people were being like, mm, do we want to be backing in Jenga? Unsure. Portuguese, I'm going to guess, were also like capturing people and stuff. So she sent a messenger to Kisanje, who is the leader of a powerful Imbangala war camp. So reminder... The Imbangala were this kind of like mercenary force who would like sometimes side with the Portuguese if that was to their advantage. And they'd sometimes side with the Mbundu people and they kind of like went back and forth. And it's like, who are they going to support today? So Kisanji is the leader of one of their war camps. Not to be confused with Kasa. So the Imbangala were also the group where Njinga's nephew had been raised and then she seduced Kasa into marrying her and then killed everybody at the wedding. That was Kasa. Different person. This is Kisanji. Totally different guy. Also an Mbengala person. So she sent a messenger to Kisanji begging him to help shelter her from the Portuguese. And he was like, okay, but only on a couple conditions. First, that Njinga become his wife and then also that she dispose of her lunga and so the Lunga is a large bell symbolically carried by military leaders during times of war. And he also wanted her to live by his traditions. So this is really wanting just her submission to him. And she's like, you know what? Done and done and done. Like, let's do this. Every negotiation. Well, I guess not every, not with the Portuguese, I guess. But people are always like, okay, and Jenga will only help you if you'll do this. If you only be baptized like catholic she's like okay like she'll just agree to stuff to get what she wants and then change her mind later and that's works really well for her so she's now entering her late 40s better than ever frankly and so Njinga began she did this she married kasanji turned in her lunga and agreed to live by his traditions which are the imbangala which is like a whole other cultural spiritual belief system from the imbundu system that she had previously been living by so, she began the intensive training necessary to become an elite Imbangala warrior. She modeled herself on a semi-mythical previous female Imbangala leader called Tembo A Ndumbo, who, just side note, Tango A Ndumbo, amazing. So, she had, this was, I don't know how long ago, generations earlier, had performed a ritual that degendered her. Tembo A Ndumbo had done this, which transformed her from a woman into a man, soldier, and warrior. And so with this as a template, Njinga did the same. So this ritual um, involved killing her own son, but Njinga didn't have a son because Mbana had killed him ages ago. So instead she killed the son of one of her female concubines. And it's unclear if this ritual was meant to literally transform her like from a woman into a man or just to hide her gender, but it meant something major because the, it was a whole ritual. There was like baby killing and then Njinga like Temboa and Dumbo before her announced after the ritual so there's a ritual dance and I think during the dance she like declared she would no longer be known as a woman but as a warrior so it's kind of like is she now a man or is it just kind of like a warrior is a position with no gender to it unclear 
oh, sorry, in just Tembo uh, Ndumbo, her story, just so you know how that ended. She was eventually murdered by her male concubine, and he took over as the leader after her death and ended up codifying a lot of the rules Tembo Ndumbo had established, which were now the rules Njinga continued to follow as an Imbengalan warrior. So it was rules like no children were allowed in Imbengala camps. Like if a woman was pregnant, she had to leave. Like, so I'm not sure where new people come from. I guess you wait till they're older, then they come back. So it's very much just like all we do is war. There's no room for children. Um, there's no room for women, just warriors. So um, Linda Haywood in the biography mentions, it speaks to Njinga's state of mind. When she's looking for someone, like at this sort of low point of like she needed to find an ally. She needed to find someone to model herself after. She didn't choose to model herself after the Portuguese governors or after the kings of Congo or even her brother because they didn't have the level of power that she wanted. She chose to model herself after Tembo at Ndembo and join with the Imbengala, who were the most feared and respected warriors. Um, their reputation for carnage, cruelty, and cannibalism made enemies and allies alike quake with terror. Uh, they did cannibalism was a the thing they did. They would kill their enemies and then also eat them. So Njinga adapted quickly to this new culture because she was resilient and good at that sort of thing. But she did not completely abandon her Mbundu cultural roots. Instead, she sort of combined the beliefs of her people with those of her new Imbengalan allies. Because that's kind of her trademark move is to just kind of like, what's it called? Like synthesize all the things together to make a new kind of way of being that was the Njinga way. Um, yeah, so she combined her Mbundu heritage with the Imbengalan's military tradition and leadership structure, thus forming a new, highly capable army. I think she brought her like pre-existing small-ish army with her, but so she had to get some more warriors. So to increase her numbers, she granted freedom to escaped enslaved people, to newly enslaved people, and other exiled... Oh, she offered titles to other exiled people from Ndongo. She just kind of was recruiting it's it reminds me of like in every you know sports movie where it's like well there's a really powerful team it's like well we're put together a team and it's like ooh but you know it's like this kid and like the kid with the glasses and like are they ever gonna get together but you bring them together and then you train them up and then it's like they do amazing um she probably was also politically attracted to the imbangalan structure because unlike in indongo the imbangalans placed value or they valued merit and dedication as opposed to who are your parents and what is your gender and who is your father and that sort of thing. So like she was more free to just get more power in that structure. Fair enough. And she thrived in Kisanji's camp, um, throwing herself body and soul into her new life. So like at her father's court, remember when she was a kid growing up, she was so athletic, good with throwing the axis. So she displayed great um, skill during her physical training. And after a few years, like yes, years, she became skilled enough to become an Imbengala leader in her own right, establishing a new war camp, and she took the name Angola Njinga Ngombe A Nga, which means Angola Njinga, Master of Arms and Great Warrior. She molded her army into a fighting machine and gained a reputation as a formidable Imbengala leader. But she needed a secure base from which to operate, like where they could stay as they were attacking the Portuguese because her plan was to free Ndongo, rescue her sisters, but she needed like a place to be. And so she was like, well, what if I invade the nearby kingdom of Matamba and usurp the queen and become queen of Matamba? And that's what she did. So Matamba, I've mentioned in part one, that's where she lived when she was first left 
Ndongo after her son was killed and she was forcibly sterilized. She lived in Matamba for a while, so she knew people there. So it's a nearby kingdom where many Mbundu people had settled. So Njinga just brought her army into the kingdom where, and this is kind of like that Bodica thing where just like, as she made her way there, people were like, oh my God, it's Njinga. Like I've heard so many things about her. So people just kept joining her army like as she walked and it became more and more people. Eventually she reached the capital where Queen Mungo's court was located. So this is also Matamba, clearly cool with a female leader in a way that Ndongo was not at that point. I don't know the story of Queen Mungo. Like, I don't know how she became the queen. I don't know anything about her except for what happened when Njinga showed up. Fierce battle ensued. Uh, many of Queen Mungo's closest followers abandoned her and fled. Njinga was victorious, obviously. And she captured Queen Mungo and her daughter, also called Mungo. This was her first military success in Jingas as an Imbangala leader, and it was really decisive. So she, um, she had Queen Mungo branded like a common slave, but did not kill and eat her as Imbangala laws would have dictated. Instead, she banished Mungo from the capital, and Mungo died shortly afterwards. Mysterious causes? I don't know. And Njinga had the queen buried in a tomb with other former Matamba rulers and made sure traditional rituals were followed. So it's the sort of like usurping and taking over is kind of like a thing that was expected to happen sometimes. And you showed respect afterwards. She also spared the life of Mungo's daughter, also named Mungo. And actually Mungo Jr. was allowed to join Njinga's army to train up as a warrior. And in fact, the younger Mungo remained by Njinga's side for the rest of her life. So Njinga is now queen of Matamba. And unlike in Ndongo, Matamba had a cultural tradition of female leadership. So Njinga had a more stable power base now that she had overthrown the queen. Like she wasn't having to worry about people not trusting her or not liking a female leader. Like she could just get on with it and not have to worry about all that politic stuff. This also gave her the political base she had lacked up until then. And she became the first Imbangala leader to rule over a state and still adhere to the Imbangala lifestyle. So she's really like meshing things in a new way. And the location of Matambo is ideal. It was on the border of Ndongo. So she could continue to like harass Ingola Hari. I don't know, sending him more letters and like haunted amulets or whatever. And from there, she could also pressure the Portuguese to release her sisters from captivity in Luanda, which was nearby. And everyone to capitalize on spiritual belief systems to get more people to follow her. She promoted the idea that she and Jinga was a goddess. The general belief among Mbundu people was the kings, or Angola's leaders, did not die but were death itself. And so as the daughter of a king, Njinga was therefore immortal. And she's like, if that helps me, I will lean into that belief. And this aura of invincibility was cemented over the next decade as she led her forces from one victorious campaign to another, capturing lands from back from the Portuguese. She also became the dominant Imbangala leader in the region uh, by adopting other aspects of the Imbangala lifestyle. And now, queer corner. So, I'm not here <laughs> as a white lady in Canada to um, state categorically anything about Njinga's... Um, the cultural context of gender in this region, in this era. Uh, to quote, this isn't a book about Njinga, but I really like this quote. So B. Koch wrote a book called Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency Era. And one of the chapters is about queer figures from the Regency Era in England. And she wrote, The question of identification, self or otherwise, when discussing sexuality historically is a difficult one to be sure, but it shouldn't stand in the way of considering the queer women of history. Absence of proof is not proof of anything. 
And then the Queer is Fact podcast hosts noted that what Njinga did doesn't necessarily mean she was a lesbian or trans or bisexual or gender non-binary, but it doesn't mean she wasn't. So, okay. So as part of the Imbangala scenario, remember she did the ritual where it was like, I'm no longer a woman, now I am a warrior slash a man or whatever. And she'd always been using the title of Angola, which was sort of a male gender title. So she set it up that her inner circle and followers should view her as a man. And this was part of the Imbangala thing. So this is where you're just like, what? Okay, so, well, this is where I'm just like, wait, what? So she kicked off this new status of her being a man by marrying a man whose name was Angola Ntombo. So I guess, I don't know what her relationship status with Kasanji is at this point. Anyway, so she married Angola Ntombo and insisted that he dress as a woman. As explained by Linda Haywood, she referred to him as female while demanding that he address her as king instead of queen. At the time of her marriage, Njinga increased the number of male concubines she kept and ordered them to dress in the same clothing as her female bodyguards. She also required the males to sleep in the same room as her female bodyguards, but demanded that they remain chaste. If one of the male concubines or female bodyguards touched someone else, even accidentally in their sleep, they would be killed or rendered impotent or infertile. So this is where comparisons to Elizabeth I of England also come into play for me, just wrapping my head around all of this. Where, you know how Elizabeth I in England was just like, I'm not a woman, you know, like, I might have the body of a woman, but inside I'm a man. Or she's like, I'm only married to the country. Like, she really de-gendered herself in order to maintain power, and it worked for her. And that was happening at the exact same time as it's happening for Njinga, really. Like, to gain acceptance and respect, Njinga had to present herself as not a woman, even though she was a woman, or at least assigned female at birth. And the Portu- and a lot of this is where it's like a lot of the writing about her comes from the Portuguese who are coming into this with their own understanding of gender and sexuality. So they were like, you know, if they see a woman who's being a warrior and wearing whatever men wore in this culture, they'd be like, well, geez, she's a man. She's doing man things where it's like, or is she just wearing pants? I don't know. Um, the Portuguese wrote that she referred to herself as a king. She did also refer to herself as a queen. So this is all interesting and like bears a lot of discussion and the Queers Fact podcast really does that discussion. But it doesn't mean that she, in her personal life, considered herself a woman or a man. We don't know. It's just the presentation she found she needed to succeed at this time was to present herself as a man. So yeah, so a trans narrative is possible here, or a non-binary. But these are all like contemporary Western concepts, and who knows if those concepts had any viability in her society. But there's a lot of gender stuff going on here. And also, so there's a thing about she had male concubines. She also had female concubines. She also had, I think I alluded to this in the previous episode, there were some concubines that were, or even just the men who dressed as women, it's kind of like, well, what gender is, are we looking at here? Like the people who are perceived as men dressed as women. And so there is also in Imbundu society, and this is also on the Queer as Fact podcast, they really talk about this more. Spiritual leaders might have worn robes or something, and then... Portuguese people might have been like, oh, those are men dressed as women, where it's like, well, those are her spiritual advisors. Like, the fact she had all these concubines, like, yes, that was for sex reasons, partially. But it's kind of like with, um, in the Harem Sultan episodes, where it's like, people just see a group of people together, and it's not like a man and a woman and a mistress or whatever. And Europeans are just like, well, this must be like some crazy sex stuff. 
where it's like, was it? Or did she just have a bunch of spiritual leaders who came around with her and also some lovers? Like, I, I don't know. But this is, this is what's going on with Njenga. So she used male titles politically and also sometimes female titles politically. And sometimes she was an Imbengala warrior, and sometimes she was a Christian monarch, and sometimes she was an Imbundu woman, and sometimes she signed her name as Njinga, and sometimes as Anna de Sousa. She was kind of a shapeshifter just through identities and religion as to what was needed to succeed, and it all worked because she did succeed. So, Matamba now under her control, she worked to expand the slave trade in her new kingdom using the profits from slave trading to finance wars and divert trade income away from the Portuguese. Over the next decade, she continued to struggle against the Portuguese and their allies, with both sides attempting to limit each other's influence and take control over the slave trade. By the late 1630s, Njinga had expanded her influence to the north and south of Matamba. Her sister Kambu was finally released from the Portuguese, so they got to reunite Fungi, her other sister, was still with the Portuguese, but she had been working for some time sending back secret letters as a spy. So these three sisters, iconic. Love it. So she's just getting more and more powerful in Jenga. So she cut off other rulers from the Portuguese-controlled coast, bringing the region's key slaves supplying lands under her control. She also expanded her territory to the north and established diplomatic relations with the Kingdom of Congo and also with Dutch merchants. Yes, it's time for another group of European colonizers to appear the Dutch. And when they arrived, Njinga was like, wait, a different group of white Europeans? I bet they hate the Portuguese too, so maybe they'll team up with me. And she was right. So she established a lucrative slave trade with the Dutch, who purchased as many as 13,000 enslaved people per year from Matamba. She continued to occasionally send peace overtures to the Portuguese, even suggesting a military alliance with them, but only if they supported her return to Ndongo, which they did not. She also refused to be readmitted to the Christian faith. Like, she's like, that era for me is over. 1641, forces from the Dutch West India Company, working in alliance with the Kingdom of Congo, seized Luanda, where the Portuguese had been for so long. They drove out the Portuguese, and they set up the Directorate of Luango, Angola. This was a major blow to the Portuguese, but Njinga was like, how can I put this to my benefit? So she sent an embassy to the city, which was now controlled by the Dutch, hoping to form a coalition against the Portuguese. She requested an immediate alliance and offered to open the slave trade to the Dutch, and they accepted her offer and sent their own ambassador and soldiers, some of whom who brought their wives to her court. And soon it was like this whole thing where it's like Dutch people, families living together with like the Mbengalas and the Mbundus all together. And the Dutch were assisting her in her fight against the Portuguese. So... Let's see, the Portuguese were in such bad shape at this point, they tried to make peace with her, but she was like, yeah, no. So, she moved her capital to Kavanga, in the northern part of Ndongo's former area. And since Luanda had been captured by the Dutch, this left her kingdom, Matamba, slash kind of Ndongo, as the preeminent um, slave trading power in the region, allowing for her to build up a sizable army of 80,000 mercenaries, escaped enslaved people, allies, and her own soldiers. At one point, she had like 200 soldiers, now she has 80,000. Using this large army, her new wealth, and her famous reputation, Njinga was able to reclaim large parts of Ndongo. But this caused alarm among other African kingdoms, including Congo. So she greatly offended the Congolese king, Garcia II. Why was it? It was because, okay, so she invaded the Wandu region of Congo. In this region, the people there had been a revolt against the Congolese king. Um, anyway, this all just 
she had been cool with Garcia II of Congo. Now she's not. The Dutch wanted to preserve their the Dutch had an alliance with Congo and with Njinga, so they tried to broker peace so they could be like a three-part alliance. In addition, Kisanji, her former question mark husband question mark was worried about her growing power and formed a coalition of Imbangala leaders against her, invading her lands in Matamba. Bye. Uh, let's see. Her successes had won her the support of many Indongan nobles. With the nobility flocking to her side, she's able to collect more tributes in the form of enslaved people, which she then sold to the Dutch in exchange for firearms, thereby increasing her military and economic power. And then, 1644, she defeated the Portuguese army at the Battle of Engelime. Engelim. Great job. But then, two years later, the Portuguese attacked her back. This story is so much like, there's so many stories we've done on the podcast where it's like and then two weeks later and then three weeks later like this this is just like years pass and like and she's still going so Njinga personally got involved in this battle when the portuguese attacked fighting alongside her dutch and imbangala forces the portuguese were winning though and it seemed like obvious they were going to win to the point where she had to make a quick escape meaning so she and kind of the most important people all just fled so the Portuguese were able to easily get to the center of the camp of the city where they were sort of confused to find like the wives of Dutch people. They're like, oh, this is like a city. But I think they're also just mad. They were like white people being held captive. I don't know. This confused and distressed them to see like white women there. Anyway, and Jinga had left so quickly that there hadn't been time to, for her to like pack or bring anything. So the Portuguese looted everything. Um, they got 500 firearms, um, all the rich fabrics and jewels, because Njinga is a fashion girl, even though she's dressing like a man. And all the people left behind were captured or killed, except for the Dutch women, because the Portuguese respected white women. The most valuable captive was Njinga's sister, Kambu, who seemingly... So she had been left behind when Njinga left, strategically, I would assume. Um, Kambu seemingly knew she's going to be taken, and in fact, the Portuguese found her sitting in regal splendor with 40 ladies-in-waiting attending her, apparently unbothered by the invasion. Iconic. She remained so calm that the military chronicler, Cadornega, later credited her deportment to majesty and sovereignty, like she just held herself like a queen. That being said, Kambu was sexually assaulted during the night by the Mbundu soldier who found her to appear for her meeting in the morning after having been assaulted, she had her ladies-in-waiting dress her elegantly. Linda Haywood writes, They decorated her hands with gold rings, placed beautiful jewels on her head and chains around her neck, wrapped her hair with cords that cascaded from her head to her hips. Indeed, although Kambu was well over 60 years old at the time of her second capture, she appeared so much younger that, to avoid another situation where she might be assaulted by guards, the captain himself took over her supervisation. But then another sister-related repercussion to the fact that Njenga had to leave so quickly is that the Portuguese found the letters from Fungi, the secret spy letters, which revealed secrets of the spy network and which put Fungi's life at risk because she had been leaking Portuguese information to Njenga for years. So again, separated from her sisters um, and Fungi's life, especially now at risk with the exposure of her spy work. But guess what? Within a few months, Njenga was already planning a counterattack. This time, like, alongside with the Dutch who she had bribed to team up with her rather than with the Portuguese. And instead of attacking the Portuguese with all her troops, it's like a big army battle. She instead set out small guerrilla forces to pillage the Portuguese lands. The formal agreements with the Dutch directed her to send half of all the enslaved people she captured to Luanda for the Dutch. And the agreement also said neither side could have any dealings with the Portuguese without telling the other ones first. And then... A messenger arrived with news that her sister Fungi had been drowned by the Portuguese. 
in the Kwanzaa River as a punishment for her spy activities, and Jenga obviously devastated. But her other sister, Kambu, was still alive, being held by the Portuguese, and Njinga was determined to rescue her again. So she got to business, just decimating the Portuguese to save her sister. She defeated a Portuguese army in 1647 at the Battle of Combi, then laid siege to the Portuguese capital of Masangano. By 1648, she controlled much of her former kingdom of Ndongo, while her control over the slave trade increased the economic power of Matamba. But then, Portuguese attacked again. Oh, sorry, the Portuguese attacked the Dutch and recaptured Luanda, which deprived Njinga of her ally-slash-trading partner. Eventually, the Dutch surrendered to the Portuguese and uh, agreed to peace. Njinga and her forces had to retreat to Matamba. Just for the record, by this time, our girl is 65 years old. And she's like, you know what? Time to try something new. So the wars against the Portuguese and their allies continued, and she was more focused on kind of diplomacy-related things at this point, creating alliances with neighboring kingdoms to expand her influence. She sent soldiers to enforce her rule over local noblemen, dispatched forces to fight against Kisanji, her exes, in Bengalans, and fought against the kingdom of Kaka in the Congo. She also used her army as a political tool, using its influence to sway the outcomes of succession disputes in her favor, so that the leaders of other nearby kingdoms would be people who she liked and major pivot she began to adopt christian cultural traditions but for real this time maybe so this all began when her army captured a portuguese priest and expanded when her forces in congo captured two spanish capuchins in 1648 so the spanish capuchins which might be pronounced capuchins were and are a religious order of franciscan Franciscan friars who had beards and wore robes and did their own thing. They're kind of like monk-esque, very like basic stripped down Christianity, not the like fancy like Vatican level gold embellished silk robes. This is like a more simple style. And Njinga liked them. So unlike other European prisoners, she granted the Spanish Capuchins extended freedoms in her war camp. And one of them Father Calisto Zelotes do Reos Mago would go on to become a longtime resident at her court and her personal secretary. So, yeah, the Capuchins were more sympathetic to Njinga's positions than previous um, Portuguese missionaries had ever been. So, she sent requests to the Capuchin order for more missionaries and for support against the Portuguese, effectively turning the missionaries into de facto diplomats between her and the Vatican. And... Because of this kind of partnership with them, she conceived of a bold new plan to develop her own relationship with Rome and convince the Pope to recognize her as a Christian ruler. Because if she had the support of literally the Pope, like the Vatican, then she figured the Portuguese could no longer challenge her right to the throne. And so began Njinga's strategic reconversion to Christianity in order to beat the colonizing Catholics at their own game. She also adopted Christian customs into her court. So the thing with Njinga is like whenever she decided to do something, she would like did it like fully. Like she nothing was ever half measures. Like when she was in Imbangala, she was like doing it. And then now she's like, guess what? I am Catholic and like in a big way. So from the 1650s onward, she increasingly relied on Christian converts at her court, like as advisors, etc. Yeah, so she appropriated aspects of Christian ideology and culture, as she had done with the Imbengalan culture decades before. Um, she also began practicing Catholic-inspired rituals, placed crosses in places of high honor in her court, and built churches across her kingdom. 
This was not without controversy because the people who she ruled over, who are Mbundu and or Mbangala people, were like, what is happening? And some people pushed back against her new policies. In response, Njinga empowered the Christian priests to burn the temples and shrines of practitioners who opposed her in order that they be arrested and turned over to her for trial. Because she was like, I've decided I'm going to be Christian. That means everybody has to be Christian. So traditionalists, I guess Mbundu traditionalists, were dismissed from her court. She sends them to public whippings. Several prominent Mbundu and Mbangala priests were sold as slaves to the Portuguese, with Njinga personally asking they be shipped overseas. Profits of the sale were then used to furnish a new church. Some of these priests um, escaped the purge and went into hiding, later working to undermine her legitimacy as queen. So, like, years have been passing, and Jenga is currently age 73, just so you know, for the timeline. The Portuguese, she'd been at war with the Portuguese for, well, I mean, actively, like, as a queen slash Angola for 40 years-ish. The Portuguese hoped to end the expensive war in Angola, like you think, and reopen the slave trade. And Njinga, who, again, age 73, was kind of on her mind, was like, who's going to take over when she passes away? She hoped to have her sister Kambu released by the Portuguese so that she could take over after her. Kambu, by the way, was is often called Barbara because she had been baptized and her, her baptismal name was Barbara. So she's like Kambu Barbara. Um, the Portuguese were like, okay, like we'll release your sister, but you have to pay a ransom. And she's like, mm, no, I won't. And so the negotiation stalled repeatedly. Eventually, in 1656, a peace treaty was signed between Njinga and the Portuguese. Um, under the terms of this treaty, she agreed to cede lands on her kingdom's western coast of Portugal. In return, Portugal ceded another region to her. And she, she agreed to allow Portuguese traders inside Matamba, and they agreed to intervene if Kasanje or Angola Hari attacked her. So they're on Team Njinga now. It's like if they had just done this at the beginning, they could have avoided decades of war. While some sources describe the treaty as making concessions to Portugal, others note that her recognition as a ruler by Portugal gained Njinga legitimacy and political stability. And then finally, October 12th, 1656, it finally got all resolved, and Cambu slash Barbara was released by the Portuguese and brought back to her. And Jenga, now 74 years old, Cambu, Barbara, around the same age, presumably, I guess, a bit younger, they were finally reunited. Like, this is her last surviving sibling. and It's both of each other's last surviving sibling. Um, as soon as she saw Cambu, Barbara, and Jenga collapsed to the ground and began rubbing soil on herself, which was the custom for someone paying homage to their superior or receiving a favor. Then she approached her sister and after kissing her hands and kneeling before her, dropped her head to the ground again. After that, the two held and kissed each other wordlessly, too overcome with emotion to speak. All of her political efforts had finally paid off. With Kambu slash Barbara's arrival in Matamba, the terms of peace were officially agreed upon. And so peace was found between Njinga and the Portuguese because Kambu Barbara had arrived with a retinue of Portuguese diplomats and then they like officially signed the documentation, etc. And after the document was signed... The next few days were given over to celebrations that lasted late into the night, much to the chagrin of the queen's new spiritual directors. So about her conversion to Christianity, it had been done in true Njinga style, publicly and over the top ishly. So when she herself converted to Christianity, she had her brother's relic brought out. Remember the like portable shrine that like, so his spirit could enter a priest? She brought out also four other like portable shrine relics that held the bo- the bones of revered Imbangala captains who had achieved ancestor status after their death. She stood in front of her council and explained how she intended to follow Christian law, but first had to know the opinions. 
Each of the council members became possessed by a spirit of a deceased Imbangala captain or her brother, and then in turn, each spirit gave Njenga permission to convert. Um, she had a spirited debate with the ghosts. Ultimately, um, they came to a consensus that um, if she wanted to live as a Christian, as queen, she was free to do so. Um, even her brother agreed. And then so she held mass public baptisms. Like, and this whole thing of her and the priests happened publicly. Everyone saw it happen. Then she had public baptisms. Before she was personally allowed to be baptized, she had to make some personal changes as well. The um, friars explained to her and to the nobles, like, you have to have monogamous marriage. That's like the Christian thing. And they were like, uh, but we have concubines and that's like our thing. And so Njinga was like, okay, you guys just have to all give up your concubines. That's the rule. And they're like, but Njinga, you, you still have concubines. Like you can't still have concubines and take away our concubines. They told her she had more husbands and more lovers than we have wives. And eventually Njinga's like, oh, okay, fine. So she agreed to a church wedding. She selected from among her concubines, a young man named Sebasteo to be her husband and was her wedding iconic? I mean, it's the wedding of Njinga. So five days before the wedding took place, she ordered all her court officials, attendants, and thousands of soldiers to assemble in the plaza in front of the church. Dressed in her war attire, she ordered them to perform the military dance they usually held before going on a campaign. After this, she stood on a large chair in the middle of the plaza, turned to them, and announced she had selected a man to marry who had already been baptized. And this is a place she would often give speeches standing in a square. She just liked to like bestow her wisdom on people a lot. And then she dismissed the more than 40 husbands or concubines and other husbands, concubines, women, all the people, all her lovers. She dismissed them all and then married Sebastio in a church wedding. He was given the title husband of Njinga, not king. Just kind of like husband, like the first gentleman. And he was granted 500 enslaved people so he could live as a nobleman. So during her era... During her years as an Imbangala leader, she had downplayed her royal identity and also her um, womanhood as per Imbangala cultural expectations. But now she was a Catholic queen and she was able to unleash her true self for all to see. And this is where it's like, what was her true self? What her true self was at this point was the most. So, for instance, she always sat on a throne when she welcomed official visitors. Father Gaeta, a Spanish missionary who wrote extensively about the time he spent with her, wrote the quote, when she received foreign ambassadors, she was always elaborately dressed in silk drapes, velvet, and brocades imported from Europe, wearing a crown, and she always wore on her hands, feet, and arms several rings made of gold, silver, copper, iron, corals, and various imported beads. She also wore the best of the local wraps that women valued and used these occasions to showcase the rich rugs, mats beaded with silver, and other precious items she had acquired. So just, I think it's like she had this all pent up on her from the time she had to dress as like a man war leader, and she's just like, but I want to be glamorous. Um, she also really got into the whole, like, I am a goddess, immortal, invincible deity. Um, she insisted she possessed special spiritual attributes and appeared in the courtyard of her residence at a certain time. I don't know if it's every day to dispense her wisdom, which is, I feel like she's 74 years old. And I, I know 74 year old women who like to share their wisdom too. She had by now stopped personally participating in the battlefield like fighting throwing her axe etc but her soldiers believe because of the whole deity thing if they received bows directly from her hand they would hit their targets and they would themselves become invincible and she was continuing on with her quest to have the vatican recognize her as a christian leader she sent letter after letter to the pope finally 1660 the pope responded to her personally 
calling her his daughter in Christ and saying he would pray for her country to be prosperous and virtuous. So she had received recognition of her queenhood from an authority that the Portuguese would have to respect, the Pope. So after the wars with Portugal ended, she attempted to rebuild her kingdoms. So Ndongo had been ravaged by decades of war with wide swaths of land left depopulated. So it would be... She did some work there, but she focused more on strengthening Matamba, which was not quite as um, desolate at this point. She developed Matamba into a trading power by capitalizing on its strategic position as a gateway to the Central African interior, strengthening her hold on the slave trade. She resettled former enslaved people on new land and allowed women to bear children. Remember the thing with Imbangala, like women couldn't have babies, like no children allowed? So the whole time they were at war and she was being an Imbangala leader, they, the whole city was like that. But now women were allowed to have babies, and she reformed the legal code of her kingdom and established contact with Christian rulers in Europe. She had a period of illness and grew increasingly concerned about who would succeed her as the ruler of Ndongo and Matamba. She didn't want her death to lead to a succession crisis, which could cause her Christian conversions to be undone, could potentially bring back Portuguese aggression. So... To ensure the transition would be smooth, she appointed Kambu slash Barbara as her heir, foregoing the traditional Mbundu elections. October 1663, aged 80, Njinga fell ill with an infection in her throat and became bedridden. But two months later, the infection spread to her lungs, and Njinga died in her sleep the morning of December 17th, 1663. Before she died, she had given instructions she should be buried in a simple robe like the Capuchins wore. That did not happen, because... All of her attendants and people who knew her love of style and fashion and kind of what the Mbundu com- like conventions were wanted her to dress up fabulously. So her body was washed by attendants who anointed it with herbs, perfume, and powders. Her hair was styled with corals, pearls, and feathers, and her crown was placed on her head. Her limbs were loaded down with jewelry and arrangements of elephant hair, a symbol of royalty. Then the body was wrapped in two richly wrought brocade cloths and velvet slippers were placed on her feet. Father Cavazzi, who's one of the Capuchins who was there at the time, and a lot of what we know comes from his records, saw this and he was like, that's literally not what she wanted to be done. So then he and the attendants made a deal where she could be put in the Capuchin robe for the funeral, but afterwards they could dress her up in Ubuntu realness following a Christian service. So she was changed into the like monk robe, but then got her glam put back on before she was buried. As following Mbundu custom, she was interred with objects valued with the same amount as the entire estate of a nobleman living in Rome at the time. So just like lots of expensive stuff was put there with her for the afterlife. Despite being buried with this treasure, the only marker that this was Njinga's grave were uh, stones marking the burial site. And then, like, it's the funeral of Njinga. Like, come on. So there was an all-night vigil. 20,000 people showed up and had to be housed in a temporary village constructed in the city center. Like, they had to construct a temporary village because so many mourners came. Funeral rites included a lengthy performance in which every aspect of the queen's life was reenacted, from her military triumphs to her renowned debating ability to humorous sketches about her strong personality. Many of the scenes ended with shouts of, Long live the queen! I'm ready to give my life to defend her from her enemies! And then the celebration of Njinga's rule concluded with an opulent meal served by the new queen, Kambu slash Barbara. So Njinga ruled for 37 years. It's one of the longest and most successful reigns of any monarch in history in any country ever. To quote Linda Haywood, 
There are few monarchs in recorded history who are Njinga's peers when it comes to longevity, skill, or achievement, yet she's rarely included in Western lists of great kings and queens. While she was able to enchant, or at least grudgingly impress, many people during her life, racism and misogyny soon began to distort her legacy in Europe. Over the years, various white chroniclers wrote works about her that strayed further and further from the truth, describing her as a depraved, bloodthirsty despot who ate the hearts of her enemies. Njinga's reputation in the West recovered significantly in the 20th century as her use as a symbol in the Angolan War of Independence increased in interest in her life, and authors began to take a more nuanced approach to her biography. Linda Haywood again says, quote, Njinga's life and actions transcend African history and the history of slavery in Africa and the Americas. Her story reveals larger themes of gender, power, religion, leadership, colonialism, and resistance. Books on notable and sometimes notable female European rulers such as Queen Elizabeth I of England and Catherine the Great of Russia number in the hundreds. Despite the many parallels Njinga shares with these women, no serious biography of her has existed until now in English or any other language. And that's 2017 when Linda Haywood wrote her book. Because prior to that, the books about her were books from like 17th, 18th century that were like, Njinga, the queen in Africa who had crazy sex lovers and was a cannibal. Or like Njinga, the woman who was a sex cannibal and then became a catholic and isn't that nice of her it's such an important book that linda haywood did and it's so recent but in the absence of literal biographies books oral traditions celebrating her life began immediately like she was so famous during her time people who knew her or knew about her told stories about her right away her kingdoms would eventually be incorporated into portuguese angola but commemoration of Njinga and her achievements persisted because she did so much cool stuff and what a legend. She was remembered by the people of Angola as a great ruler, someone whose resistance, determination, and sheer genius has, had led her to succeed against all possible odds. By the time Angola got, gained its independence from Portugal in 1975, 400 years after its conquest, Njinga had become firmly entrenched as a symbol of independence, and the Angolans refer to her as mother of the nation. And Njinga's story has been kept alive both by the people in the regions where she lived, as well as through the people captured or purchased from those regions by the Portuguese and sent to Brazil, who brought her story and memory with them. So Brazil and other parts of, um, in the Caribbean, the legend of Njinga, still very well known, very celebrated. In 2002, a massive statue, it's, a, I'm going to put a picture on Instagram, it's like, I don't even know, four stories tall, a massive statue of Njinga was unveiled in a public square in Luanda. Um, it was later moved to the Museum of Armed Forces, where it still stands today. Um, while it was still in public, the statue was a popular gathering spot, and newlyweds would pose for pictures in front of it, as they might pose for pictures with their actual parents. And her... The way that she used gender, religion, political alliances, um, helped lay a foundation for future leaders of Ndongo today. She really, the whole thing about like, oh no, can a woman be a leader? Like she made that be not so much of an issue. In the period of, like in the next century following her death in 1663, queens ruled for at least 80 of those 100 years. So during her lifetime, she never fully overcame the idea of females could not rule in Ndongo. And she had to become a male to retain power. Her female successors faced little problem in being accepted as women and rulers. And she is a leadership role model for all generations of Angolan women. Women in Angola today display remarkable social independence and are found in the country's army, police force, government, public, private economic sectors. 
In December 2014, the National Reserve Bank of Angola issued a 20 Kwanzaa coin in tribute to Njinga in recognition of her role to defend self-determination and cultural identity of her people. In 2013, an Angolan film called Njinga, Queen of Angola, was released and stars the network that does all the Philippa Gregory um, type adaptations is currently developing a series about Queen Njinga and the star is going to be Yatide Bedaki, who is the Nigerian actress who is on American Gods and is such a good actress and I think would do an amazing, will do an amazing job as this role. And also she's 40 years old, which I love because Njinga is a story about a woman who was so powerful and she wasn't 18. She wasn't 25. She's a woman who things just started going for her at age like 35 and she kept going after that. Um, the producers of this series are 50 Cent, Stephen Estenite, and Mo Abundu as producers. And that is the saga of our new icon, Njinga. So time to do some scoring. I truly, I don't know how this is going to go. I feel like, I feel like it's going to be a high score, but like how high will it be? Let's decide. It's tricky starting with scandalousness because so much of her story to me, I'm just like, Ooh, so juicy, the scandaliciousness of it all. But I'm like, no, but like think in her era and her time and place. But when you think of that, so it's like she had all of these lovers. She had all these concubines of various genders. And it's like, well, but that was just kind of how things were then. But it wasn't because that one guy like challenged her about it and was like, stop being so open with your sexuality. So that was scandalous. But no one could really challenge her about it because she was the king's daughter at the time. Um, murder wedding is both schemey and scandalicious. I don't know if I can score for both. The I don't know. I feel like the stuff she did is so cool and awesome. I'm I'm going to go back to scandalousness. I'm going to give her a 10 for scheminess because a 10 for scheminess. Like 10 plus for scheminess were that possible because everything she did, just like the strategic baptisms, the like three-pronged revenge plan, the murder wedding, all the like I'm going to be Christian now. Now I'm going to be in Bengala. Like everything like the way that she escaped on a vine that one time even just like the chair moment like she's a 10 for scheminess and i think she is a 10 for significance as well because of everything um the impact of her reign on that region was massive because the way that the portuguese people are like this woman just won't stop being rebellious against us is significant and actually in terms of the legacy, like we talked a lot about with the slavery, the Atlantic slave trade, all of that. And historical records show that this is from Anne Terrio's piece on long reads. So historical records show that the number of enslaved people departing Luanda for the Americas dropped in 1623, just as Njinga was beginning to consolidate her power. The number would fluctuate over the coming years as the balance of power shifted between Njinga and the Portuguese, finally falling to zero in 1642 and staying low for the rest of Njinga's life. It's possible that her claim of supporting the Portuguese slave trade was all part of her statecraft, an empty show of alliance that distracted them while she worked to circumvent them. We can only guess what her actual intentions were, but the numbers tell a compelling story. So she was active in the slave trade? Asterix her role in it may have meant less people were sent for a time. So anyway, the significance both of her involvement in the slave trade, the people who were sent, but also was it less people. The like 20 foot statue 
of her in Angola, the way that her story lives on in legend, um, it's a 10 for significance for sure. The sexism bonus. Now, in a story where she was forcibly sterilized, that's a major sexism thing. The fact that um, she was doubted for so long in Ndongo, like she wouldn't have had to leave and go to Matamba if she had been accepted as a leader, but people like, oh, girls can be leaders. But the purpose of the sexism bonus is kind of to be like, it's to give bonus points to people who are held back by sexism because some people could have done more were it not for the sexism. So it's a way to kind of even the playing field a bit. Like she gets like, we're starting off with a five for sure. And then I think that moves up to like an eight because of the sterilization and the way that people are associated to her boat, her gender. And then the fact that she had to act like a man in order to retain control. I'm going to go with an eight for sexism. And then we have to wrap it back around to scandaliciousness. I've talked through those other things. So the scandaliciousness is just like, on the one hand, it's like, how did people see her at the time? But it's also like to us as a podcast, how scandalous was the stuff she did? Like she seduced a man, a younger man, entirely just to kill everybody at their wedding where she's the bride. I love the use of fashion as a weapon. Is that scandaliciousness though? The way that she sort of like slowly manipulated her brother potentially causing his suicide so she could take over is scandalous. Um, the way that she just sort of like mercenarily would just like change religions and stuff, I think would, well, certainly to everyone who is passionate about any one of those religions would find scandalous when she switched out of it. Like the murder wedding is very, I think it's her highest scandalousness moment. And... I don't know if I can give her a 10 for scandaliciousness because the context in which she was living, her actions weren't necessarily scandalous to that culture. I'm going to give her a oh, murder wedding is such a major thing, though. I'm going to give her an eight for scandaliciousness. So what does this add up to? Boop-a-doop. 36. A 36 for Njenga, which puts her right up there towards the top as well fredigand 38 queen margot 37.5 and then Njinga 36 harem sultan 36 malancine 35.5 like that is that is your top five and it's glorious and that's just where i'm going with my gut if you let me know what you think about that as a score it's tricky it's tricky like she did so much war stuff is the thing with Njinga that she scandaliciousness is more like I'm sure she did cool war stuff like Fredigan did you know like disguising as trees etc but that scheminess is not scandaliciousness like the scandaliciousness Njinga is amazing in so many ways scandaliciousness is just not the top number one way in which she was amazing I don't know such a story though right so excited about it I'm glad I got to do this two-part episode and just like really get in depth with it with you all so, thank you for listening to Vulgar History. Before you close out of whatever little app you're listening in, I would appreciate it if you could just tap on the five stars button. There's one of those on Spotify. Um, on Apple Podcasts, there's a little button. There probably is on Google and other things that you like to listen to your podcasts on. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the reviews. I appreciate getting tips of, I'd love to learn more about African history. If you have suggestions of people from African history or wherever, um, you can send me a message. If you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's a little contact button you can smash. You can email me vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. All the pictures and stuff 
will be posted on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, where my DMs are open. You can send me suggestions and feedback there as well. We're on Twitter at Vulgar History. And then, of course, there's the Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Writer, that's where you can get all of our bonus content. And yeah, there's a link in the show notes. If you go click on the one, it takes you to bookshop.org to buy your books. And if you buy books through there, you are supporting this podcast directly. I super recommend Linda Haywood's biography of Njinga. It's just like, this was me talking for two hours. I'm sure if you listen to that book read out loud to you, it's like 20 hours. Like there's so many excellent, amazing details. It's such a saga. And of course, if you go to vulgarhistory.store, um, use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off of all of our merch. The proceeds of that also support me and this show. Thank you all for listening. And I'll talk to you all. Oh, sorry. Mask on. Tits out. Talk to you all next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.